Hey, everyone. My new book, Beautiful Writers, A Journey of Big Dreams and Messy Manuscripts with Tricks of the Trade from Bestselling Authors, is ready for pre-order. Those authors are the legends you hear here on this very show. Beautiful Writers pubs on August 23rd. And if you purchase the book now and plug in your order number over on bookmama.com, you will receive lots of really cool writerly pre-order bonuses to help you birth your own book baby. I even send you personalized book plates to include in your books for holiday gifts with five or more orders. I mean, how much easier is that than trying to re-gift used candles? I love when wins. And now for the show. One night, poetry came to me and said, you're coming with me. You need to learn how to listen. And yes, we know it's going to be a hard road, especially for us who are teaching you. And uh, (laughs) I took it on and it's been my biggest teacher because when you go into the place of poetry as a writer or a reader of poetry, you go into that place beyond time. You go into the place beyond words. And you find things there. You can find your, you find yourself, you find ancestors, you find uh, out that those stones nearby can speak and the trees have their own language. Now the scientists are coming out with all kinds of books about this, but this is part of our old knowledge. This is called Remember. It's for those ancestors here. Remember the sky you were born under. Know each of the stars' stories. Remember the moon, know who she is. Remember the sun's birth at dawn, that is the strongest point of time. Remember sundown and the giving away to night. Remember your birth, how your mother struggled to give you form and breath. You are evidence of her life and her mother's and hers. Remember your father, he is your life also. Remember the earth whose skin you are, red earth, black earth, yellow earth, white earth, brown earth, we are earth. Remember the plants, trees, animal life who all have their tribes, their families, their histories too. Listen to them. Talk to them, they are alive poems. Remember the wind, remember her voice. She knows the origin of this universe. Remember that you are all people and all people are you. Remember that you are this universe and this universe is you. Remember language that comes from this. Remember the dance that language is, that life is. Thank you. 
That was Joy Harjo, our nation's official poet. The performance you just heard was for the Library of Congress, the night she began her formal duties as the 23rd Poet Laureate of the United States. Joy is the first Native American to hold this position. She's also the author of one of my favorite memoirs, Crazy Brave, many books of poetry, two children's books, and she's a musician with five award-winning CDs of original music. That was her playing the flute as she recited Remember, one of her earliest poems. I'm Linda Sievertson, and I was desperate to bring Joy on the Beautiful Writers podcast at this time, in part for something I couldn't give language to, but felt a profound pull. (laughs) Wait, that doesn't really make sense. I had an overwhelming feeling that she would have wisdom for us on this virus that we're all facing as a human family. Wisdom that would somehow illuminate deeper truths and perhaps bring comfort. And boy, did she ever. Her bring through on this topic was new for us both, and I can't wait to hear what you think. She's also going to read a piece she's working on for her new memoir. That was a surprise. You'll hear her editing it in real time as she reads to us, which is super helpful and might make you feel not so unlike this great creative mind in the middle of her process. As the saying goes, we all put our pants on one leg at a time. So too do writers all write their sentences one word at a time. Sprinkled throughout this episode, you're going to hear more from Joy's performance for the Library of Congress that night. Snippets of her poems and her playing the flute that you just heard, and the saxophone, which she learned later in life. This performance brings me to my knees, and I'll share the link with you at the end of the show so that you can see the whole thing. Joy has my heart. If you're a regular here, you know that I create each of these episodes as a love letter to my guests, to literary agents and publishers of world-changing books, and to you, my listener. This podcast, at times, even more so than my writing, has become my art. But never once has the mere acceptance of an interview request moved me to tears. I have hardly been able to stop crying in the days since Joy said yes. Maybe you saw the video I shared on social media about how nervous I was to ask her to come on. I had been waiting until it felt right. But what if you've got a goal that means so much to you, that feels so overwhelming in its scope and import that it just never feels right? And then it hit me the other day in the midst of this coronavirus scare staring at my four walls. If we can't follow our hearts now and at least commit internally, to our deepest desires, then what the hell? When will we? What's coming up for me right now, and maybe for you too in your own four walls, is a profound need to go toward my longings, to the people and causes and events that make me feel alive and on purpose. I am a tree hugger. I raised my young son off the grid in a forest in New Mexico. He and his father are part Cherokee, and our church every Sunday was in a Nipi sweat lodge with Thomas Onewolf, a Suquamish medicine man who sang and drummed his prayers. The incense, if you will, for those sweat lodges was sage and lavender and sweetgrass. Knowing that he was born a medicine man, Thomas's parents hid him on the big res in Navajo Nation where he was kept safe from the forced schooling that would rob Native Americans of their language, their long hair, their traditions and culture. Joy and I talk a bit about that. 
Thomas One Wolf's adopted father, Grandpa Pete Concha, was the Kinsiki, the spiritual leader of the Tiwa people at the Taos Pueblo. And Grandpa visited our lodges and feastway dinners often. As a child, I believed I was Native American. Was that from a past life? I don't know. I will also never know how I got so blessed to be part of such a sacred hoop created by Thomas and Grandpa. But interviewing Joy, it feels like coming back home to part of myself, to a deeper realization of my environmental mission, the reason I started interviewing people and writing nearly 30 years ago. In future episodes, I will share more on that front, including interviews with some of my Echo heroes and info on sustainable publishing. And while Thomas and Grandpa are gone now, in researching Joy, I found a recording of Grandpa singing and drumming at the Pueblo, which I will share at the end of the show. Joy's mother was also Cherokee. Her father, Muskogee Creek, the fourth largest native population of more than 500 tribes in America today. Like my parents, her parents met at a dance hall, love at first sight. But she says they were from enemy tribes, her mother fire, her father water. Joy's art is a mixture of the two and of her ancestors who came before them. Her poetry explores imperialism and colonization and how each have contributed to violence against women, something much of her activism centers around. On an episode of Super Soul Sunday, Oprah said that Joy's evocative writing has been described as instructions for the soul. I don't know that any instructions right now could be more urgent or life-giving. Welcome to our hoop. The earth asks very little for us humans and we're even failing the very little the earth asks of us because we're all in a crisis right now because we need to learn to listen, all of us. And poetry is one of those means you can listen to the earth. You know, if you, the earth has all kinds of songs, but often it's in poetry you can hear them. And this is in honor of this beautiful land. It's called My House is the Red Earth. is the red earth it could be the center of the world I've heard New York Paris Tokyo called the center of the world but I say it's magnificently humble you could drive by and miss it radio waves can obscure it words cannot construct it for there are some sounds left to sacred wordless form for instance that fool crow picking through trash near the corral understands the center of the world as greasy scraps of fat. Just ask him, 
He doesn't have to say that the earth has turned scarlet to fierce relief after centuries of heartbreak and laughter. He perches on the blue bowl of the sky and laughs. Thank you for being here. I have never cried before when I've received news that somebody was uh, coming on. And when I got the AOK from you, I wept. I mean, I just, I haven't actually been able to stop crying, which is really unlike me. So it's just very moving for me to speak with you. Well, thank you. I'm glad we're all here and alive. And we certainly have a lot of work to do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. I have land in New Mexico where I did a lot of work with wonderful Native Americans. And right now I have a place in Scottsdale and I went last night out into the front yard into the Tonto Forest amongst the uh, the big stars and the cactus. And I just thanked God for this beautiful moment. We're all kind of slowing down right now. And as scary as it is, it feels like there's a returning There's some kind of powerful returning to the earth right now. Are you feeling that? Well, we all needed to stop. And I think a lot of us had the sense that we were working towards this, but we didn't know exactly what form it would take. We knew it would be something related to the earth's body. And we knew we were getting the messages very clear. We have been getting the messages very clear for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so that it came this way is. It was a surprising vehicle for the stoppage, but it's actually what we needed. Mm. I love that line in Crazy Brave where you write, remember the earth whose skin you are. Yeah, that's from the poem, Remember. I think we're all, as you talk about it, so easy to forget. But I think the earth is forcing us to remember right now a lot of things. You know, for years, there's been that, the Woody Guthrie song, you know, this land is my land, this land is your land. And there's supposedly another line farther down in the song that somewhat redeems that. And I understand the spirit of that. It's like Walt Whitman's poetry. Well, you know, we're all part of each other. But really, it's not that at all. It's that we are the land. Mm. That when that NASA image of the Earth was released, it was so profound, beyond really how we understood it to be profound. I think we kind of knew it, but it was out of that that we started hearing holistic, ecology, Mm -hmm. and global when those terms started emerging and being used and towards a kind of consciousness or super consciousness of all of us being on this planet spaceship Earth. (laughs) Right. You have a line somewhere, and I don't remember where I heard it, but I've carried it with me, and that was that the globe is a person. And I think it may be in connection when you were talking about it's been seven generations since the time of removal of your people and how it's happening again at the border with migration. It's a time where I think a lot of people are looking at this organism we're atop of and wondering, how do we reimagine our place here? Yeah, 
if you think about it, our children are essentially a reimagining, you know, by ancestors, just <laughs> as we are, our grandchildren, our great grandchildren, and how we act. It's not just how we sit in our, in front of our computers and write and think, but it's really too how we with the reimagining because reimagining also occurs in physical action, mm-hmm. not just speaking or singing or dreaming aloud. We also dream aloud with how we act as essential components. Or we want to be essential components of this earth that I've often wondered what use have for this biosystem called earth or in our language, Muscogee language, Iganachaga. What use are we? What is our purpose here? I said that once when I was talking to a group at a college and someone interpreted it that asking about what I mean here and started giving me this long philosophical thing about the meaning of life. And it's like, well, I know how our lives are about finding meaning, but it was more of a larger question, really, what use are beings to the essential biological being of the earth? Yeah. You Then you go, okay, then what is the spiritual being of the earth? It's certainly tied in, just like the spiritual is tied in with our bodies. What about the spiritual needs of the earth? Or what about the mental needs of the earth? And people will say, well, there's no brain there, but think about it. It's another way to come to an understanding. What about the physical needs of the earth? Right. When I was living in New Mexico full time and I was doing sweat lodge every weekend with Thomas One Wolf and sometimes with Grandpa Pete Concha. And Thomas would talk to my son, who was very young. He was six and seven and eight, nine, and he was tending to the fire before the hot stones would go into the Anipi. And he would talk to him about the stones and about how, (laughs) I'm going to start crying, and about how the stones had memory and how they held stories and they could communicate those stories. And I remember watching Thomas talking to Tosh, thinking, what kind of an adult will Tosh be with this knowing that he wouldn't have been had he not known that? It felt like such a powerful teaching and something that, again, we as a civilization have forgotten. No, because to be civilized, quote unquote, is to separate the body from the soul or the spirit. To be civilized means that you can buy and sell souls for religion. To be civilized means that you separate yourself as a person of the earth. That's my experience of it, and that's my tribal nation's experience of it. Is That's what it meant to be civilized. Yeah. What did you think of the news out of Standing Rock the other day? Yeah, I thought that was great. I hope so. I think, what is it? It's just now that the Dakota Access Pipeline must undergo further environmental and social review. So it's not a free and clear, but it's a step in the right direction. It's a step in the right direction, but it's done its damage. I know. It's done its damage. And I suppose there's ways to undo this. We have to continue trying to undo and to remake and to heal. There was a time when I was living in New Mexico where there had been drought throughout the entire state. And I want to say, and I've looked and looked and I can't find any corroboration, but I want to say it had been a year 
without any significant rainfall throughout the state. And it was, I can't remember if it was 94, 95, 96, but Grandpa Pete was friends with Governor Bill Richardson. This was before he joined uh, Bill Clinton's cabinet. But at the time, Governor Bill called a prayer. He called to all the Pueblos across the state to do the corn dances and do the prayers for rain all on the same day. And we did. Thomas got the Anipi fired up and everybody came. There were probably 10 of us in the Anipi. And when we walked in, it was a clear day. And Thomas started singing his prayers and drumming. And we were all deeply in prayer. And I kid you not, we heard banging and clamoring and we knew what it was. It was thunder. And we opened the flap and the sky was black. I had never seen a blacker sky in my life. And we were absolutely drenched with rain. And I remember the whole state got rain. And I thought about that when in Crazy Brave, where you're talking about Rainy Dawn's birth, your daughter's birth. Mm -hmm. And you talked about seeing your daughter's spirit when she was conceived above you on that fine sheen of light. And there was a drought at the time. And this was before Maya Nipi. But did you name her Rainy Dawn? Why did you name her that? I'm sorry, that was a very long. <laughs> it was a, you know, it, it's a good name for someone who lives in a desert place where you need rain. So, <laughs> you know, so it, that she's named Rainy Dawn means that she can help bring rain and that the poem itself, if with that intent, you know, has that possibility. And I do remember when that happened and anyone that's lived in New Mexico and I've lived there most of my life. I return home to Tulsa, Oklahoma, because my tribal nation is here. Yeah. And I have work to do with the people here. But my children, grandchildren, even great-grandchildren live in New Mexico. And I we lived there since 67, off and on. Because wow. I went to Indian boarding school when it was a BIA school. Now it's right. a, I, II is a full-blown college. But anyone who's there knows that when the Pueblo people dance for rain, well, here come the clouds. It's magic. It's yeah, absolute it just, magic. It's communication. It's it's communication and it's about developing that kind of communication. And not just developing. And developing, it means that you have a respectful relationship. And it's like anyone. You have to build that relationship. Mm -hmm. You can't just assume it because with every relationship comes responsibilities. Oh, no kidding. So you remember, because I have looked and looked in the news This was really pre-big internet usage time in 95 or 6 or 7, whenever it was. But you remember that when Bill called for a statewide prayer and you remember it working? Yes. That's so nice because, you know, Thomas is gone now and Grandpa Pete is gone. And many of the people that I lived, they're all gone. I know all the people that I lived near are gone and it's there was nobody to ask. (laughs) So thank you. Oh, that's magic. That's the difficult thing. The older you get. The people that I always went to for the answers with a capital A or for insight, for that deeply spiritual insight that you won't find in books or you won't find anywhere else. So they're all, they're all gone. Mm. But their insight is still here and they still, they planted it. So it's available. But again, like communicating with the spirits who bring rain, you know, there's a relationship that has to be cultivated. Right. I love that line you have that says, bones have a consciousness, within marrow is memory. And I had the weirdest thought this morning. I thought, oh my God, I wonder if she thinks it's possible 
that my affection for Native Americans was made even stronger by carrying a baby boy who had Cherokee blood within him. My son is part Cherokee. And I had never thought of that until I read your line or revisited your line, Bones Have a Consciousness Within Marrow is Memory. Well, they do. And that's why most culture people take care of their bones. And it's such a sacrilege when the bones of our ancestors are dug up and then put in boxes in the universities and the museums for study. And at one point, I remember Suzanne Harjo, she had said that there were more bones of our relatives in these kinds of institutions than there were living natives. No. Oh, that's devastating. Yeah, to hear that, that's shocking. And that, that was sh- like 20 years ago she said that. So I think it was her. I don't, can't say absolutely, but it's shocking to think about that. And that's why I'm thinking about being cremated because it's like, yep. you want, yeah, you want somebody disturbing because they are. They still hold memory and they still hold stories, just like the stones holding stories. Don't bother the earth spirit who lives here. She is working on a story. It's the oldest story in the world and it is delicate changing. She sees you watching. She'll invite you in for coffee, give you warm bread and you will be obligated to stay and listen. But this is no ordinary story. You will have to endure earthquakes, lightning, the deaths of all those you love, the most blinding beauty. It's a story so compelling you may never want to leave. This is how she traps you. See that stone finger over there? That is the only one who ever escaped. talk about you're four years old, you wake up and you've got the symptoms of polio. And at the time, it caused paralysis and death in many, many children. So your parents rightfully were terrified. They took you to the hospital, which you called a house of strangers, and they watched helplessly as you're given that spinal tap. Do you ever feel, I know you had a dream. Oh God, I'd love you to talk about that. That dream of alligators that you believed healed you. I'd love to know about the dream and if you feel that kind of energy or opening of the veil right now on the planet with this virus. The book Crazy Brave, the memoir, and I'm working on the second memoir right now, but that book took 14 years. It was in different forms. And at one form, it was like twice as thick. And that was the form that had a lot of dreams. And I've always been a kind of I don't know that I would call myself a dreamer with a capital D. And we all dream. It just depends on what you do with them. And and the more you pay attention, like with anything in your life, the more that you'll get from it. They'll come in more. So not all of them are teaching dreams. Not all of them are visionary. Some are. Some aren't. A lot of them are just your body and your spirit just working through stuff. Some of it might be a bad meal or something. I know, exactly. But, but it's just working through. But From the time I was, you know, from day one, I've always had this link with, which is the natural link with what people call the dream world, which can wind you up in the etheric realms or it can 
take you into uh, other higher places. So I had these, especially as a young child, before the door gets shut by quote-unquote civilization and the civilizing (laughs) process, is that I was deeply in touch with, as are, I think, most children, because they're still fresh from the place we come from and fresh with creativity, fresh with our relationship with creativity, with our spiritual selves and so on. So as a four-year-old, I was still, you know, you were very perceptive at that age. And with that being four years old, I've always had this thing with alligators, and it's always been there. And it's not my clan or my clan relationships. None of them, at least as far as I know, link to alligators or crocodiles. But I had this dream, and I was awake in it, but I knew it was in another time. And sometimes I think, I don't know that it's past lives. Sometimes I think there's a huge story field. There's many levels to it, and we participate in it. Some of it's DNA, some of it's not. Maybe there's more than just physical DNA. Maybe there's soul DNA. Maybe there's other kinds of DNA. But in that dream, which I write about there, is that I've got a water jar, and I go to the river. Well, that could be in Egypt. I had at least to have a lot as a child before I even knew the word Egypt. I would dream myself in a lot of those places. I did too. And uh, I had a water jar. It could be at Muskogee Creek. I mean, it could have been, there's a reason they call us creeks. And we're around a lot of water. And we had trade routes into the Gulf, into the islands. And we were quite a dynamic culture. Yeah. So it could have been there. It could have been a dream of a grandparent. It could have been something that happened. Or it could have, you know, who knows? All I know is that that dream was part of me because there it was. So I had a little dog about when I was five, and his name was right after that. That was his name was Alligator, so I got to meet him. (laughs) Yeah, and so then I also since then had, I've been in places where there's whole cities underwater and, and so on. And that's all in those different dream realms. And the alligators in the dream, didn't they take you underwater with them? Right, to those realms, to one of those realms, because there's not just one. And then you were suddenly able to leave the hospital. Magic. Well, I was lucky. Yeah, I was lucky because it was rampant. Sort of like the, you know, there was a panic and a, Mm -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. very similar. It'd be interesting to look at because I remember you were warned to stay away from swimming pools, public places. Right. Polio was contracted through swimming. In fact, my mother's best friend never learned to swim. Because of that reason. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about when you were talking about your grandmother one time, you said that she was often perceived as strange because she appeared closer to death than to life. And she, your grandmother had tuberculosis, as did my grandmother. My grandmother died of it when my mother was very young. And you wrote, I felt sadness as grief in her lungs. The grief came from tears of thousands of our tribe when we were uprooted and forced to walk the long miles west to Indian territory. And growing up with the legacy of tuberculosis in my family, my mother had great grief and she had lung problems. And I have done years of healing work on my lungs because I was at her bedside when she passed. And I instantly got the grief in my lungs. So I had lung issues for, I don't know, 20 years. 
after she died, I just took it right from her. I took good qualities, I think, from her when she died, and I took her grief. (laughs) And I've done many, many years of processing it and finally actually gave up dairy altogether because that was the final piece to get the stuff out of my lungs. It's been miraculous. But I think about that right now because we are in this place and time where people are having lung issues with this virus. And I'm wondering, again, is it our collective grief? To me, it feels like grief all over again. I thought of that too, because it does directly affect the lungs and the lungs process. They process grief. They're the major processes of grief. And I know once the first time I ever went to the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, where my grandfather and many other relatives fought against Andrew Jackson and the illegal move, and there was a massacre. Yeah. I got bronchitis. I never had bronchitis yep. before or since. And then I've almost died twice from pneumonia. But the saxophone, I realized a few years ago, helped heal my lungs. Uh. And the other thing, before I forget, is that our mothers, sometimes they pass things on directly at death and at other times. And there's been times where I've sat and processed when there's something that has come up in the family or with me. I've had to sit with it, and then it's sometimes it's like even unknotting something that could cause harm in the future for the children or grandchildren, because we don't want that harm to come to them. We all have things to learn. We're all here to help take care of things, and we can't each of us do everything, but you can consciously do that, which brings us back to this coronavirus and how it directly goes in to stop up your lungs. And I think of it, well, if we are, if you think of every human bearing a set of lungs or one lung for some people, but we're bearing lungs that we're also part of maybe what we are here to do for the earth, we help clean the earth. Mm. And maybe our lungs all working together are helping. The earth has grief. No, for sure. And maybe that's, What's happening here? I mean, we're processing our own grief, and certainly we don't we have grief as a nation, and then I speak, I can't speak for tribal nation. I can't even speak for my own, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, as tribal nations, we have grief in this country and in the history of this country, but we have grief as citizens of this earth body. You wrote that uh, just as you felt your grandmother living in you, You felt the legacy and personhood of your warrior grandfathers and grandmothers who refused to surrender to injustice against your people. And I think there have been injustices against people throughout time. And even the ones doing the injustices are hurt. Right. We're all injured by pain that we cause or that's perpetrated against us. So I think that's an interesting idea that you've just put forth that we're maybe healing some collective human grief for ourselves and for the planet as a whole entity. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. I find that I used to have horrible stage fright. and I know, you said you were very shy growing up. Yeah, right? yeah, and I had horrible stage fright. The part of playing saxophone was to get over it. I didn't pick it up till I was almost 40, and then I did something horrible. I learned to play on stage, which was not the best way, but I've learned... <laughs> But I guess what I was leading to this is that what I've learned and then used to when I would perform, I would do my set list and I would stay exactly 
And yet intuitively I would feel, okay, go here or say mm-hmm. this or do this. And I wouldn't do it. And then I would leave the performance feeling sad, like there was something I missed because I didn't let go and go there. So what I've learned, certainly writing is a creative place and making you know, writing music and then improv, it's all creative, is that even doing interviews, <laughs> even being part of an interview, I've learned that being on stage to be open. And I never know what I will say or what I will do sometimes just because I go with it. I'm in that yeah. place. And you learn that the stage, walking into a space, you cross a line into a space. You cross a line from nighttime to dawn or you cross this line. It's a creative space. Oh, yeah. So that even in an interview, it, it makes me think, I was thinking, I love the image. And I think, where did that come from? I love the image of all of our lungs working together is cleaning the earth and it's like where does that I keep thinking about that because that's not something I thought of before me either but it's a stunning visual and I can see it and it feels it feels possible yeah every human culture has trickster figures some of them are coyote some they have jesters and often you find the trickster figures sit close to the person in power (laughs) until in some instances they take over the seat of power and that's all I need to say (laughs) and this is a contemporary rabbit trickster story and you'll see what I mean In a world long before this one, there was enough for everyone until somebody got out of line. We heard it was rabbit fooling around with clay in the wind. Everybody was tired of his tricks and no one would play with him and he was lonely in this world. So rabbit thought to make a person and when he blew into the mouth of that crude figure to see what would happen? The clay man stood up. Rabbit showed the clay man how to steal a chicken. The clay man obeyed. Then he showed him how to steal corn. The clay man obeyed. Then he showed him how to steal someone else's wife. And that clay man obeyed. Rabbit felt important and powerful. And clay man felt important and powerful. And once that clay man started, he could not stop. Once he took that chicken, he wanted all the chickens. Once he took that corn, he wanted all the corn. And once he took that wife, well, he wanted all the wives. He was insatiable. Then he had a taste of gold. He wanted all the gold. Soon it was land or anything else he saw. His wanting only made him want more. Soon it was countries, then it was trade. The wanting infected the earth. We lost track of the purpose and meaning for life. 
We began to forget our songs, our stories. We could no longer see or hear our ancestors or talk with each other across the kitchen table. Forests were being mowed down all over the world to make more, and Rabbit had no place left to play. Rabbit's trick had backfired. Rabbit tried to call the clay man back, but when that clay man wouldn't listen, Rabbit realized he'd made a clay man with no ears. talk about stories. As a child, you used to play with bumblebees. You'd hold them and talk with them. And like a producer of a play, you made them characters in your stories. <laughs> I love that tale so much. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes. I remember one of my mother's best friends was a woman that lived across the street. She was also Cherokee, like my mom. My dad was in Scogee Creek. I remember they like to sit outside under the tree and I was friends with her a kid named Ronnie. And so I'd sit out there and just play and make up stories. Later on, I would actually get other kids and we would do plays, but all of the dialogue was taken from what we'd heard our parents speak <laughs> that they didn't know they were saying <laughs> from the weeks before. So those shows became very entertaining and very popular. <laughs> oh my for, a, for a while, yeah, they were. It was pretty. I used to love to put on plays and do that, but. With the bees, that was just me sitting outside in the clover, you know, where the bees hang out. And I didn't know that they stung you. This was before I knew that they could sting you. Yeah. And so I would play with them. I would pick them up. They wouldn't bother me and just set them down and say, okay, sit over here. This is, this is where this happens. You know, just make up little stories. Yeah. And they never stung me. Not until an adult, it was probably my mother and my mother's friend, looked over and said, no, you know, they <laughs> exclaimed, they were shocked to see me with these bees and ex made an exclamation and I jumped out of fear and there was fear, you know, they, then I was right. done. Now, this concept that stories can be very demanding and need care and assistance. When I read that you said that, I thought, oh, that is the the story of my life and every client I've ever had, every writing client, because we feel that they're demanding. It's like they start whispering, but if we don't listen, they start just yelling in our heads. <laughs> so uh -huh. can you talk about how that works for you when you're writing? Oh, man. I mean, every story is different. Right now, I'm writing these, kind of be a memoir in stories. And I don't know. This is coming about a little bit different. It's not like I have a character, you know, like characters can become very demanding. Yeah. Or even a story, something. Often what happens, and it depends, something haunts you. I just recently, I think, wrote the best song I've ever written, like a full-fledged storytelling song with a bridge and a chorus. Nice. I probably one of the best things I've written. 
And how did it come? It came with almost a heartache. And I know that the only way that I'm going to be able to deal with it is if I write. There was something, and I didn't know what it was. And I started writing, and I thought, oh, this is lame. And it was. <laughs> just I was trying to find it, but drafts are, it can be that way. Oh, Sometimes God. you have to have faith. And so I started drafting this thing, and I said, and I've always had an insecurity around writing this kind of thing for music because I came to it later. Just first uh, did painting, and I still photograph, and then I started writing poetry, and then later memoir and stories and this, that, and the other scripts. I've written scripts and plays. And yeah. I've musical play right now but it started and then I think just trust but it came from there was something really deep but what I loved about it it came out real and I worked on it but I need songs and I've got this musical play I'm rewriting the book of it and then I've got a couple of songs for it and then I did this just out of the sheer sense of whatever this thing was and then I realized after I get it done, wow, that's the song I needed for such and such. But I didn't logically, I didn't go in there with that intent. Well, I need this song for this and this. But I thought, thank you for reminding me that <laughs> this is how the creative intuitive process works. Because in the civilized world, they teach you that you go after something and then you pin it down, you wrestle it down, and there you have it. And yet, yes, there's the work of crafting it, but if you ask for help or you're working in that field, that things will come to you or inspirations or images or melodies or whatever will come to you in another kind of way. Mm. You have to do your work. You have to practice. You have to gain knowledge so that you have other possibilities and modalities open to you. But when it comes down to it, that creative process, that's why I always really balked from teaching or teaching, right? You know, it's like, it feels like a mystery to me. And I don't want to, <laughs> I would always feel, I wouldn't always say that. It just feels like a mystery to me. And I love the mystery. And I don't want to emerge from the mystery. So please, you know, please, I don't want to go in there and have to talk about this. I just want to be in it. Oh, I get it. I get it. I've had many dreams that have woken me up in the middle of the night with the opening page of an article or books I'm supposed to write or an entire chapter. And I don't know where that comes from. And I don't question it. My fiance would say, babe, that's just your unconscious. It knows you're working on it and it's just giving it to you. And other people will say that's coming straight from spirit. I don't know, but I'm just grateful and I just show up. I just do what I'm told and I just write down what I see and I just hope it makes sense. And sometimes the piece doesn't make sense for 10 years or 15 years right. like it's happening for me. I'm using pieces right now for something that I worked on 18 years ago. And I'm just so grateful to have found them and so happy that they're still here because they're perfect for what I need. So it's all a big mystery. I release you. My beautiful and terrible fear, I release you. You are my beloved and hated twin, but now I don't know you as myself. I release you with all the pain I would know at the death of my children. You are not my blood anymore. I give you back to the soldiers who burned down our homes, beheaded our children, raped and sodomized our brothers and sisters. I give you back to those who stole the food from our plates when we were starving. 
I release you fear because you hold these scenes in front of me and I was born with eyes that can never close. I release you, I release you, I release you, I release you. I am not afraid to be angry. I am not afraid to rejoice. I am not afraid to be black. I am not afraid to be white. I am not afraid to be hungry. I am not afraid to be full. I am not afraid to be hated. I am not afraid to be loved, to be loved, to be loved. Fear. Oh, you've choked me, but I gave you the leash. You have gutted me, but I gave you the knife. You have devoured me, but I laid myself across the fire. I take myself back, fear. You are not my shadow any longer. I won't hold you in my hands. You can't live in my eyes, my ears, my voice, my belly, or in my heart, my heart, my heart, my heart, my heart. But come here, fear. I am alive, and you are so afraid of dying. Liz Gilbert, in her first TED Talk, told a story about the poet Ruth Stone. I think you've probably heard this. She was growing up in rural Virginia. She'd be out working in the fields, and then she'd hear a poem coming over the landscape, and she would run to catch it. And sometimes she'd catch it by its tail and pull it backwards into her body, and it would be on the page backwards. <laughs> that, to me, is the most dramatic uh, sort of realization of a creative bring-through. What is the most dramatic realization of a creative bring-through for you? Well, I like that one. I'd rather just sit with that for a little bit. Right? <laughs> but yes, we can't do this with airtime. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know the most dramatic. It's like, you know, just sort of how things come. When you're improving music, that's dramatic bring through, although sometimes you can waffle around. But then when everybody's in it together and then you're moving and things happen, that is some of the most exciting stuff. Hmm. I can think of something that must have been exciting. Tell me about getting the call of being named the Poet Laureate of the United States. What was that like? That felt like lightning. And <laughs> well, it literally did. It felt like this lightning going through, and it's it's kind of weird. I've known Rob for a long time because he runs the National Book Festival, and he's out there. And we had met through another. He runs the Poetry and Literature Center and is in charge of the Poet Laureateship. But it's appointed. The appointment is by the head of the, the Library of Congress. Right. And uh, I had a new book coming out, An American Sunrise. Gorgeous. And so I got a note from him, an email saying. Are you available for a call? And then he writes, you know, will this time or this time work? And then he writes back, P.S., it's just a quick question. Mm -hmm. And I thought, because when he said that, and I knew he was in charge of that, not that I thought I ever had a chance, but it did run by, and I thought, and then he said, I just have a quick question. And I thought, okay, you know, it's a National Book Festival. Right. So, because I had talked to him on calls before. Well, I was not prepared at all. I had no, I had no idea 
And so they called, and then I hear him say, wait a minute, we're on speakerphone, and here's Dr. Carla Hayden. And they said, we want you for the 23rd U.S. Poet Laureate. Oh, my God. And it was, it was like lightning and so much energy moving through. I mean, you can't, I had no, I had not, it was totally unexpected. I imagine. Wow. Did you celebrate? Did you, did you dance in your office? Did you go no, out? No, I went, I, was, I, had, I had my studio, I have a studio through the Tulsa Artist Fellowship. And I remember sitting there and the weird thing is before the call, I thought, you know, I should go home for this call. And it's like, why do you need to go home for the call? So I sat there and then you're not supposed to let anybody know. I mean, I could tell my husband. Right. Or, you know, other people, publishers, you know, and so on, but it had to be kept quiet. And then I was like, I didn't know whether to, it was a celebration, but it's also like, here's responsibility. Oh, yeah, like you're, a heck you're of a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're responsible. You just thought it, you have been doing this for years. I've been going out and being, I mean, essentially, I think every poet is a kind of ambassador for poetry. Totally. Or every writer, and you know, you're representing. But what was exciting, especially exciting for me, is that it was the first time a Native person had been in that position, and it has done so much for Native people because there was a study recently done. There's a a group called Illuminative who's been gathering data on images of Native and in the public, et cetera, et cetera. And one of their studies is like, well, a large part of the population of the U.S. think we're dead. I remember a guy, Larry Mitchell, I played music with him. He's a wonderful guitar player and producer. He said growing up in Bed-Stuy in New York City, he said they told him there were no natives left. Oh, God. And a lot of people feel that or they still see us, at, you know, after the Calvary has left and we're, we've disappeared or our culture's disappeared or we've lost who we are so we're no longer native or this or that. And little do they know. We're over 500-something tribal nations. We have different languages, different cultures that are just extremely different from each other. So what's cool about this position is, yeah, some natives are poets. Well, yeah, there's there's a lot of poets. I just got the galley of our anthology, the Native Poets. We all worked on this. A new book that will be out in August called When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through a Norton Anthology of Native Nations Poetry. Oh, so it's like, beautiful. yes, we are poets, and there are a lot of poets, and we're all over this country. And mm-hmm. So that's been exciting. It's changed my life in ways that become clearer every day. And it's a responsibility. I recently taught an online book proposal course, and there was a gal in the class, a poet, Joanna Ucali, whose poems have found popularity around the world. One of them, Girl Child, that she submitted herself, was featured for the International Day of the Girl Child by the Women's United Nations Report Network. And getting to know her made me question, you know, we've seen poetry make a resurgence in some places, like certainly Milk and Honey brought poetry to people who had never heard poetry before. And also what's great about social media is It's so easy to share poems and to share snippets of poems, which I think has been probably really fantastic in your world. I don't know. You can speak to that. But how does somebody right now, what is your advice to a poet who wants to be read? Well, there are some poets that have made, I guess, careers that 
people in the usual literary world know not much about because they've made their place as poets in yeah. the world of texting and the world of social media. Interesting. Yes, and I forget their names, but they've sold millions. You know, it's, I know. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's the question, you know, well, are they good poets or what is, you know, and so on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so there is that. I guess anymore it's changed. Before it was always, well, publish and publish in small magazines and magazines. And that's how people built up an sure. audience and then performances and so on. Anymore, it's really social media. Right. People do YouTube, YouTube channels, Facebook mm-hmm. Live, Facebook, and so on. Yeah. So that's one way to do it. But the funny thing is I was noting the other day to somebody that when I post poems or music, mine or other people's, I don't get as many responses as I do when I post different photographs or I write something that's very topical or yeah. it's about cooking. <laughs> like this, like <laughs> I think the point I got, yeah, but the thing I've learned is that yeah, you help a poem into the world and you can get it so far and then it has its own life. Like my poem, remember, there's yes. a filmmaker photographer in Hawaii who came out here and spoke with me and wants to film that poem, but I haven't heard anything. So I don't know where that's going, like a lot of film yeah. projects. And it's going to be a book, Simon Schuster's bringing out a book with illustrations by a Canadian native artist for the poem, Remember. And suddenly that poem is appearing in different iterations. Yes. You just don't know. Some poems, I've watched how some poems just have their own, they go out into the world and they have their own lives. Right. As you know, I'm working on a book based on this podcast with wisdoms from y'all. And I have a chapter called Paying the Rent, Making a Living Before It Pays to Write. And I talk about how Harper Lee was an airline reservation attendant and John Green was a chaplain at a children's hospital. John Steinbeck dropped out of college before becoming a manual laborer, which informed the Grapes of Wrath. And then, like you, Stephen King moonlighted as a gas pump attendant. I don't know if you know that. (laughs) No. But I would love for you to talk about what it was like filling cars at the mini-served gas mart and what you were doing in your mind. Were you creating your art while you were pumping gas? You know, at that time, and I was probably, how old was I? I must have been 18, 19 years old. And I wasn't writing then. I was doing art. I liked to draw. And I, yes. and I had the idea, you know, I was thinking about becoming an artist. But I remember I wasn't even going out to look for a job. It was my husband who never found a job. He could look and look and he could never find one, even though. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we drove up in that old car that the back, uh the trunk lid was always falling off in the street. <laughs> and we drove up and I didn't come dressed for a job. I was wearing jean cutoffs and t-shirt and sitting over in the, we didn't have seat belts in that car either. It was a 1940 something. And he looked in and looked at my husband and then looked at me and said he would hire me. So I thought, yeah, I might as well because he's not going to work. And I loved it. I you loved did. working that. Yes, I did because it was outside. You know, usually jobs yes. for women, you know, the jobs are inside somewhere or waitressing. I look at the jobs I was qualified for. And uh it was outside. It was different. I enjoyed it. 
I enjoyed visiting with people. I enjoyed all of that. And then I made that mini skirt in the shell oil gas colors and cars started lining up. But I knew how to, <laughs> I knew how to uh, fill gas without showing it. I was very careful, but it became a very popular place. But when I left there, there's a whole story behind that. But when I left there, he said, you know, you're the best worker I ever had. And if you ever need a job, come back. And after that, he said he was going to hire women. Yeah, and women didn't, yeah, you never saw women. He took a chance doing that. And he was always respectful of me. Mm. And when I was that age, it happened, you know, constantly being hit on. But he was respectful, and I appreciated that. As a young woman, and I think a lot of young women go through this, you're walking through a minefield. You're always walking through this mind. Always, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You have this uh, part in Crazy Brave where you talk about turning on the television, what you call the story box that changed the story field of the world. And you talk about how the commercial aspect of stories threatens the diversity of the world stories and the manners of telling them. And that the television stands in the altar place of most of the homes in America. I had never thought of it that way the altar place. And I think that's so sobering because that urgency that you feel, that I feel to create, that everybody listening to this podcast feels to create, I feel like we've got this urgency, but there are so many things that take our attention and drag us away from our art. And one of them being the television. How do you handle your relationship with the TV? Well, I guess now it's the computer and I have to, it's so addictive. <laughs> I know. You know, all of the, it is. And for some of us who are kind of the messenger types, it's especially addicting. Yeah. But I just, one of the chapters, I mean, it's not, I haven't refined it yet. This is the last part. I almost feel like reading the whole thing to you, but it's like a page and a half. <sighs> it's about plants. Oh God, I would love it. Feel free. It's called Plant Love. I don't know that it's going to be the title. I had moved into my mother's sewing room at the end of the summer to assist her as she completed lung cancer treatments. She was vigorous, talkative, always moving, and continued to eat whatever she wanted. She surprised all of us when she passed easily one morning in early October. She didn't look or act like the typical cancer patient in hospice. Until then, we had time to catch up and to heal. So I realized I need to fix something there. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The first time, that helps reading it out loud. I know, right? Yeah, the first time I drove her, okay, she didn't look or act like, uh, you know, I don't even need that one line. I'm just going to. I love this because we're editing in real time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People need to yeah, see this. I just put I it in yellow. Read out loud. Read out loud. That's what okay. I tell everybody to. Yeah. The first time I drove her to a cancer treatment, she looked over at me as I maneuvered through a busy intersection and noted that it had been a long time since we had any sort of time together. We were going to get to know each other in a way we hadn't since I'd fled from home as a teenager to Indian school. Her words acknowledged the deep water stream of the unspoken hurt flowing between us. Or I should probably say stuck between us. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there we go. That's another edit. I like it. Uh, I say fled. She and the stepfather drove me to New Mexico. With each mile, I felt freer and freer. And when they checked me in and left me in my footlocker belongings at the door, at the dorm, I should say, at the dorm. I never yeah. looked back. From that time, my mother and I wrote letters. There were phone calls and my usual summer visits for stomp dance season. 
For most of those years, I was not allowed home to see her. And to see her, I would have to go to her place of work to see her on breaks. I'm going to take all the seeds out. I was banished by my stepfather because I told the truth about how his behavior had hurt all of us in a letter that he, he illegally opened. He opened all of her meal. He monitored all of her calls, her trips. He banished me, and she went along with it. After he died several years later, I was once again welcome in her home, but her compulsive smoking made it difficult to stay there. She quit smoking 10 years before her diagnosis. She'd been smoking since she was around 10 years old. Her older brothers had taught her to smoke so she wouldn't tell on them. The ritual of smoking had been her closest companion all those years. Tobacco is one of our sacred plants. It has powers, ways to help humans. When it is colonized, that is, grown and then processed with additives, it has essentially been repurposed, even enslaved, to do the work of addicting for the profiteers. I was taught to use tobacco as a way to open the door to a spiritual path, to signal to those in the spiritual realm that I am here and listening, thinking of them too. It is a way to begin a conversation, a connection. It works that way, I guess, with those planted on earth. Smokers usually circle together. There's a visiting, a kind of communion. And smoke winds through the winds between and around them. My mother loved plants and flowers. The image of happiness for me in childhood is the kitchen in our home before my parents divorced and we had to abandon that home. The windows in the kitchen were framed by the plant that was fed by water and my mother's singing. It wound all around the windows, framing the sunlight that broke the night. And there were more nights than anywhere else in the known universe in that house. Nights of violence and despair. The kitchen in the morning was the room of refuge. In those early years, my mother baked and made demo records. She wrote at the kitchen table on an Underwood typewriter. We often danced in that kitchen. It's where I learned to jitterbug. My father hunted and brought home deer meat or rabbit, or he fished and brought home trout. We ate it in that kitchen. After my mother's cancer treatment, she always wanted to go eat somewhere. She could put it away and would often order two desserts. Or we would go shopping for groceries. Every supermarket now has a plant section. One afternoon, she pointed out a large pot of bright flowers. She wanted that one. I carried them out and loaded them into the car. I carried that pot to her porch and set it down where she instructed. It was then I heard the other plants nearby making a ruckus. I heard them, and I couldn't believe I was actually hearing them. They didn't speak English, but I knew exactly what they were saying. My mind translated for them. We don't want that plan over here. Well, then, I told them, you're being rude, rude, and this plant doesn't need to be next to you. I moved the plant elsewhere on her porch to a place they welcomed the new family members. Since then, I am more sensitive to plant politics and their individual differences. Species have a kind of personality, a feel, and even individuals within those species. I'm not sure that language is exact, but this is the part. Our physical living is held together by plant sacrifice. We eat, wear, and are sheltered by plants and plant material. Nearly all of our medicines are plant-derived. We need to take time with them, with plants, to get to know them. It says one of the elders from Isleta Pueblo told me once when she came to visit me and admired the two aloe vera plants who took up a large part of the living room and were basking in the sunlight filtered through the skylight and her attention. These are the knowledge bearers. They are the ones we need to be listening to, not your computer, your internet that is pulling you into a world that will never feed you, only make you hungrier. So now, because of her words, my mother and my relationship with my plants, I listen closer. 
man, I can see I have some work to do in that, but that's one of the pieces. Oh my gosh. And it made me think of a couple of things. I just talked to a plant the other day in my guest bedroom and I said, oh, do you want to be closer to this other one? And it said, yes. And I moved it because they were across the room from each other and I sensed a longing. Uh huh. So now I feel better about that. <laughs> yeah, no, they don't make their way known. <laughs> some of them are really, they're so different. I learned a lot from a sweet potato plant. I had never had one. I've never liked sweet potatoes or yams, maybe because they were usually cooked with way too much sugar. Yeah. But I still had to make myself taste. Yeah, I just never liked them. But I had a sweet potato that was going to flower practically in the cabinet. So I went and planted it, you know, put it in water with toothpicks. And yeah, yeah. man, that thing grew. It was huge. It just kept growing. And then I planted it and then it went down a little bit. It's given me, I'll eat sweet potatoes now because it shows me how there's so much in them, so much, <laughs> so many nutrients. And there's that plant is, they're so regenerative. That's what I learned is how regenerative yeah. they yeah. were. So now I eat sweet potatoes. <laughs> it's in the other room. It's still going. It's it. all over. It's all <laughs> over the window. And then if I go away for a while and it kind of cuts back and it's flowered many times, it's just amazing. And that's oh. one sweet potato. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think nature is always talking to us. I always felt that as a child. I think most children talk to nature. And I certainly felt that way when I was raising my son. I was a dog walker in Beverly Hills in Hollywood. And I would take him walking until we moved to New Mexico. And he would walk and he would talk to the spider webs and he would talk to the birds. And I watched him having conversations with plants when he was an infant, just looking at them back and forth, watching them talk to each other. So what I love so much about the Native American culture that I don't think we have enough of in the rest of the world is this idea that nature is talking to us through animals. And I know crows have always given me warnings of impending fire or people on my property or, you know, your mother's going to call and tell you she has cancer. I will get 300 crows over my house screaming at me on those very days. And your father, as sensitive as he was, you said he understood cloud language. He understood how to talk to animals. And did he pass that on to you? Just being around him, because I realized it's in us. He wasn't a good, he was not, you know, he was a water person. He wasn't really a storyteller type. He was that silent type. And I realized that he didn't know how, he grew up with a stepmother and then was sent to, um, military school in Ponca City, Oklahoma, and he really didn't know how to deal with his feelings or the emotional field or what was given to him. Yeah. He didn't really have the training or the materials. Well, like you said, where your people were in trauma. Mm-hmm. That's true. Well, this makes me think about your father. I remember you saying that your father, he could not find a hold on the banks of earthiness. He was water. Water people can get easily lost. They may not comprehend that they are lost and they succumb easily to the spirits of alcohol and drugs, which reminds me, Thomas One Wolf used to say to me that when the Indians were forced into the forced schooling, which a lot of white people don't know about, they yeah. were forced to cut their hair and stop speaking their language and give up their culture and their beliefs. Anyway, he said that a lot of them reached towards a different kind of spirit, which was alcohol. And this was your father, right? He was a sensitive soul. 
Yeah, and somebody told me once, and I wish I could remember who. It could have been somebody who worked around alcoholics, and Native alcoholics said, because there's not just Native, I mean, there's all kinds of people, is that people are looking for a vision. Yeah. And that's what it's about. Yeah. This morning I pray for my enemies. And whom do I call my enemy? An enemy must be worthy of engagement. I turn in the direction of the sun and keep walking. It's my heart that asks the question, not my furious mind. The heart is the smaller cousin of the sun. It sees and knows everything. It hears the gnashing, even as it hears the blessing. The door to the mind should only open from the heart. An enemy who gets in risks the danger of becoming a friend. is a piece in Crazy Brave where you say the only time America will heal is when we all have a seat at the table. We all get to say our prayers and sing our songs until we all have a place. And I want to thank you for helping us to feel better about telling our stories and singing our songs and making our place in this world. Well, thank you very much, as we say in the Muskogee language, Maro. As uh, Thomas used to say to me, Ahomatakwiasen. Mm-hmm. Thank you. She had horses who got down on their knees for any savior. She had horses who thought their high price had saved them. She had horses who tried to save her, who climbed in her bed at night, prayed. She had some horses. some horses she loved. She had some horses she hated. These were the same horses.
sky full of gratitude to Joy Harjo for bringing back to me a piece of myself. You can find her at joyharjo.com with a listing of her many books, including Crazy Brave and An American Sunrise. I hope you could feel the love that went into this episode. I imagine you are being inundated with frightening images of the coronavirus spreading throughout the world. And I think the more we can fill our ears and our hearts with wisdom from our native sisters and brothers, those seers and medicine people and artists and elders, the better off we will be. As Thomas One Wolf used to say to me, we need to walk lightly upon Mother Earth. I'd like to think that we're being gifted with a unique opportunity right now to learn how to do just that, walk lightly. A tree hugger can hope. If you'd like to learn more about the Thomas One Wolf I keep talking about, the guy who so deeply influenced my life and my work, the book Generation Green that I wrote with my son for Simon & Schuster in 2008, was heavily influenced by my friendship with Thomas. There is a writer by the name of Julie J. Morley who has compiled a beautiful book of the wisdoms of Thomas One Wolf. It's called Spirit Walk, and you can order it online. I'll put a link to it on my blog over at bookmama.com. Anytime you come to this episode, even when Corona is a distant memory, please God, you will be able to find the links by searching Joy's name on my website, Bookmama. I'll also include links to Joy's website and the Library of Congress performance you heard here. I am so grateful they allowed us to tap into that magical evening. I want to give a shout out to the incredible musicians who played with Joy. Robert Mueller on keyboard, Howard Cloud on bass, and Larry Mitchell on guitar. Huge thanks to my sound engineer, Kevin Baker of Red Room Sound. And before I sign off here with one last snippet from Grandpa Pete from the Taos Pueblo, I want to thank those of you who've taken the time to leave your five stars or a positive review on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. I read every single one of them and they mean so much. And one last thing that might bring comfort. We had frequent wildfires in New Mexico. I'd see them off in the distance looming through the trees and over the sage. I'd race to Thomas One Wolf's cabin and ask if we should round up the dogs and horses and prepare to flee. In each case, before he'd head off to take a nap, leaving me shaking my head, he would say, Linda, you cannot die before your time. I don't know if that's true, but I'd like to think so. All right, stay safe, you guys. Until next time, right on. <laughs>